Coming up on this episode of AARP's Perfect Scam. I pulled into a lane and I saw them behind me, but then they raced ahead of me. I made a right-hand turn, raced ahead of me, said, you hit me. And I have a wife and two kids in the car. And they, they jumped out, and, and then there's a, another guy in there with tattoos. You're not alone, by the way, Will. I was alone. Not all scam artists come in the form of anonymous calls or mysterious emails. Some scammers operate in broad daylight. On today's episode, we bring you the story of George and Sandra, targeted by scammers in the middle of the day on an L.A. street. It might not be where you'd expect to get scammed, but as we've learned, sometimes scammers can strike pretty much anywhere, anytime, and often when you're not expecting it. For The Perfect Scam, I'm your host, Will Johnson, and I'd like to welcome back my co-host and AARP's Fraud Watch Network Ambassador Frank Abagnale. Frank. Great to be with you, Will. Thanks. Good to have you back in the studio with us talking about frauds and scams. But first, as we like to do, um, we like to ask Frank questions. I should just call this part of the show Ask Frank Questions. <laughs> the You spent like 16 to 21 life of crime, if I can call it that. You did some time. You got out. You got married. And you've been with the FBI now for how many years? 41. 41 years. And over that time, when you were, I guess, in your 20s, it was you, um, not long after you had gotten out of prison in Atlanta and gone to work for the FBI, you told me a little bit about this before we taped today's show, but you were on the Today Show and then Johnny Carson noticed you? Can we talk about this? Because I think it's really cool. (laughs) That's how uh, the Catch Me If You Can, the movie, really all started is I was on the Today Show back with Tom Brokaw back in the 70s. And I was actually on there talking about counterfeit money. And so we were talking about how to spot a counterfeit bill. It was Christmas time and they were doing this segment about it. And I remember I had a bunch of they had a bunch of bills in back of me that were counterfeit. And towards the end of the segment, Tom Brokoff said, before I close, he said, you come to the government with a kind of an unusual background. Uh, Will you tell me a little bit about that? So I started to say about how it all came about. And Johnny Carson was watching it, so he sent out a thing and told them to send me that tape. So he watched the tape, and the next thing I got a phone call from Johnny Carson's assistant that said he would like to have you on the show. And I go, to talk about what? <laughs> well, he'd like you to talk a little bit about your life. And I said, well, what's, what's involved with that? Well, you need to come out for an interview. We don't pay for that, so you'd have to come out on your own expense. If we decide to have you on the show and we invite you back, we will pay your travel expenses. And I said, I just said, you know, I'm out there all the time. Can I come by for an interview when I'm out there? I said, of course. I went out and did the interview. They invited me on the show. And uh, it was the first of nine times I was on Johnny Carson. But the first night I went on, I did take my wife with me because it was such a big event. And we, she was sitting in the green room. The Pointer Sisters were on. And they were at the top of the game then. This is the 70s, right? Yeah, right. So, and yeah, uh, yeah. they were all in their gowns and ready to come on. And I thought I'd be on about five or six minutes. And uh, they, Johnny Carson, after the first segment, said, we're going to go with the rest of the show with him. So the Pointer Sisters never got on, and I was on the show. Well, after that, they got like 300 calls asking, where can I buy this book? Only the switchboard at NBC saying there is no book. He was just talking about his life. <laughs> so it was Johnny Carson who really said to me, you need to write a book about your life, and you need to write it now, not when you're 70. And uh, so... Uh, Catch Me If You Can came from being on The Tonight Show. And did Spielberg come across you from The Tonight Show or the uh, book? From or? The Tonight Show is where he originally came across the story and yeah. then, of course, later the book. And so Spielberg, being the wonderful man that he is, he remembered where that all started. So yeah. on the night that he finished the final edit on the movie, he had a DVD burn. 
And he signed it and sent it over to Johnny Carson's home and saying to him, this was not be possible had not been for you. And he signed it and sent it to his house. So he was one of the first people to actually get to see the movie. It's an amazing story just how you all of a sudden realize that, or I'm guessing all of a sudden, but then over time also, that you realize that your story had some real impact on, on people who were learning about it and also just wildly entertaining. Yeah, and I was kind of the opposite. I was more about, I don't want anybody to know this. Yeah. You know, I'm trying to hide my past. Yeah. I don't want anybody to know who I am or what I did, and so it was the opposite. must have been a relief almost to finally realize you could just talk about it and accept that you were moving on. Yeah, I don't know that I've handled fame very well because I don't like the fact that everybody knows who I am and and all that. That's very difficult to deal with, and I think to myself— if I deal with it on such a small level, what does someone like a Leonardo DiCaprio or somebody like that have to deal with every day of their their life? I think it would be really, really tough to be that famous and that well-known to where everyone knows who you are no matter where you go and what you do. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into today's story. And again, uh, a couple out in uh, Santa Monica, California. And a lot of the scams we cover on the show here uh, take place over the phone, over the Internet. They're faceless, if you will. This one is uh, up close and in person. And because the potential scam victims come face to face with the scammers, it has an added degree of danger to it. On today's episode, meet George and his wife, Sandra. Hi, George. Uh, This is Will at AARP. Will Johnson, how are you? We're fine for a 92-year-old war veteran from World War II. We're doing well. You sound great for a a 92-year-old war veteran. George and Sandra are both retired. Not content sitting at home, they volunteer together at the Los Angeles National Cemetery. And how long have you two been married? Four years. We're newlyweds. Congratulations. Well, we're widow and widower. And that's a, well, congratulations as newlyweds. And George, you're 92. Is Sandra like 25? <laughs> Earlier than that. No, I'm 79. After one of their volunteer days at the cemetery, they were driving home on a typical beautiful blue sky Santa Monica afternoon, windows rolled down. And suddenly, in the, on the passenger side, I looked out and this man with a beard, I sort of, I would say young, youngish, uh, yelled out, go ahead and, and say what? What did he yell he out? He said, you hit me, and I have a witness. And I said, I did not hit you, and I kept driving. And then this other white Maserati came up, up yeah, while we're driving and says, um, I saw that. So he saw that, and I said, we're, we're, we're going to go to the police station. So, George, you were, you were smart enough to probably say, okay, uh, these, these bearded fellows are connected, and this is a scam. It certainly looked like... Yeah, I actually said to them, this is a scam. What they saw was two older people in a Lexus, but we had our license plate with the disabled or handicap on the license plate. But we knew exactly where the police station was, and we got there, and and the police said, oh, yes, uh, they're out there, and he gave us a special number to call the next time um, it happens when... to get a police car right away. And let me get this straight. So you drove to the police station. So that sounds very scary and also very smart of you just to do exactly what you did. Exactly. And then, but they didn't go all the way to the police station. They didn't. Oh, no, they veered no, off. I, I got saw off. them in my rear view mirror. He he followed me, and then about halfway down, he suddenly wasn't there anymore. Uh, so he knew. They put these white streaks. I don't know how they did it, but somehow they got these white streaks on the car. And I said to George, put your finger on that. I bet it wipes right off. Uh, of course it did. Sure. So maybe before you left where where you were at the VA or somewhere along the way, they, they did this to say, That's oh, right. we, yeah. 
They could have done something on that already, yeah. I wonder if their car had like a uh, a crumpled fender or something that they had already previously... I couldn't observe that, but we knew that the next car that said that he was the witness was a Maserati. Yeah, but yeah. he had a beard, the same similar type as the first man. Well, their beards are all the rage these days, so... Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> George and Sandra played it safe and made a smart move, driving to the police station without stopping. But here's where the credit goes to Sandra. It wasn't the first time this had happened to her, and the first time years earlier wasn't so smooth. So, similar thing, um, I pulled into a lane, and I saw them behind me, but they had plenty of time to stop, and I did not feel anything, and then they raced ahead of me. I made a right-hand turn, raced ahead of me, said, you hit me, and I have a wife and two kids in the car, and they... They jumped out, and, and then there's a, another guy in there with tattoos. He's all alone, by the way, Will. I was alone. And uh, so he, at that time, I was, you know, really shaken, and I said, well, I don't see anything. And he said, oh, look there, and there was this blue paint on my tire, and his car was blue. So he, he said, um, you know, I'm going to call the police on you, or if you want to get in the car, we'll go to a place and, and uh, we'll, you know, get it fixed and, and uh, you can just pay us so you don't have to <laughs> uh, the, you know, deal with the insurance company. So I was so new at all this. I was all ready to make them out of jail. My, my wife had just been recently widowed, so I wasn't with her or anything. This is a, a, few, a few years back. Go ahead, honey. I'm sorry to interrupt. But so let me let me back up. So it sounds like so they said you you hit the car. You got in the car and took and they took you to get money out to pay them money. Yeah, he jumped in the car, and and the other guy, the other was another driver in his That's car, the, and they yeah. followed. They followed me. Oh, but one of the guys got in your car. Or they got in their right. car. Yeah. They were intimidating her. They got in your car. Yeah, and I'm sure they had it all set up with the place they took me to, which was a long drive, about 45 minutes. And then you got money out. You paid the money. Do you remember how much they asked for? I was going to hand them a check. And then I called my bank, and they said, "Don't you give them that check?" Oh, so they, so you never, so so great, good. That's a so you, you did not pay them any money. No, and, I was about to. Yeah, sure. And then so fast forward several years or many years later, and here you and George are, and you know exactly what's Deja going vu. on. Deja vu. Deja vu. That's exactly it. It was the same tone of voice. Yeah. You just hit me. It's tough because a lot of scams like this, they fall into a realm of, well, you know, accidents do happen. Sometimes we might uh, hit something lightly in a car and not even know about it. But this one smells fishy. The best thing is if you can get to a police station. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the, the, a lot of the, again, a lot of the scams and frauds we've been talking about have been over the phone or over the computer. This is one that's in person and could have uh, dangerous, uh, Very dangerous consequences. Yeah, so I'm glad, yeah. You're, I'm glad you're both okay. So with prior experience and a lot of savvy between the two of them, George and Sandra escaped this hit-and-run scam. But as the local police told them, it's not an uncommon crime, and they were lucky to get home unscathed, unharmed, and none the poorer. And I'm back with the AARP Fraud Watch Network Ambassador Frank Abagnale. Frank, uh, this is kind of a scary story. They both come out of it unscathed. Uh, but Sandra talks about an early experience, earlier experience, where uh, she wasn't quite so lucky. Um, but it's dangerous because these are criminals in person. We talk a lot about 
internet and email and and phone fraud. Well, these scams are all based on simply intimidation. And actually, there was a third player in her first scam and probably would have been in the second one as well. And that was the garage they went to or this place where they were taking her to fix a car while it was 45 minutes away. Uh, they're part of it. So then they bring it in there to get a quote. How much would it cost to fix this? And they get the quote from them to make it look like it's legitimate and get the money. But all three of them were probably involved in that that scam. You know, they're all ba- these types of scams, and they come in different different varieties. I remember a couple of years ago walking down the street in Manhattan, and this gentleman walked out of a liquor store. He kind of looked like he was probably a little drunk and. Uh, disorderly and he bumped into me purposely and dropped a brown bag and it broke and he said to me uh that's i just bought that bottle of whiskey cost me twenty dollars it's all your fault it's all your fault and you need to give me the twenty dollars to replace it and so i kind of kicked the bag around a little and i said sir that's water in there i said you're just trying to scam me out of twenty dollars and that's an old scam i said i'm not falling for it you can't fool frank people all right kept walking but, I mean, that's how they work. And most people would have said, you know, I don't get it seen with this person. I'm giving them their $20. And, you know, but they're all based on and trying to intimidate you. Getting in the car with you is part of the intimidation. Uh, the whole thing is based on you're going to give them some money because you're intimidated by them. And intimidation is used, uh, obviously, online and over the phone as well. Exactly. I mean, we now have people actually that literally uh, threaten to kidnap you on the phone or kidnap a loved one of yours unless you pay a ransom or uh, cause you bodily harm unless you pay them something. Um, again, you know, the best thing to do in those cases is to report it to the police uh, so that they uh, they are aware of it and also they can take steps to make sure that it's not a actual really a uh, someone threatening your life. And this couple, George and Sandra, uh, drive to the police station, and luckily they knew where the police station was. They uh, they told the the person who was doing this to them they were doing that. Is that was that a good I idea? That, I thought it was a great idea. Before okay. I'd ever got in the car, I would have just drove away, and but I would have headed to the police station. Yeah. And even if they and I would tell them I'm going to the police station, and you know that again they followed just for a short period of time and left. They weren't about to go to the police station with them. And again, this is a. Uh, a crime that might have been perpetrated against them because they were older. I mean, George thought maybe because they had the handicap license plate. Right, and and they're very easy to intimidate. It'd be hard to intimidate some maybe young couple who would have said, "I'm not, I'm not buying that." You know, well, let's go to the police right now. He, I'm sure they looked at this might be someone easier to intimidate, and uh, obviously they were not. This kind of gets into this whole real-world scams, and you talk about the guy with the liquor bottle. But scams have been around since, what, like humans have been yeah. around? I, I don't know what, like, you know, biblical scams right. were. You know, I think it, all scams are based on, one, building confidence with someone, two, uh, sometimes intimidation. Uh, certainly urgency has to be done right now, right away, and you have to give me the money uh, right away. Uh, those are all red flags that when you start to see those elements of it, you uh, you have to start thinking that somebody's actually uh, scamming you or trying to scam you. When uh, and when you got into scams, did you were you aware of this idea of con men or confidence men, or were you doing something that simply seemed like, hey, I can do this. I'm getting away with it a little bit. I looked at it more of because I was uh, pretending to be somebody I wasn't, or I was going in a bank to cash a check. It was more to me just the act that wasn't more about I'm going to con this teller into cashing the check. Right. It was more about I'm going to go in 
and and deal with whatever I have to deal with. In other words, whatever they say to me, I'll come up with some answer for that. So I don't think it was me premeditating, I'm going to go in and con somebody out of this or I'm going to convince somebody of this. I think I just took everything and ad-libbed it and went in and whatever I had to say to, to make them believe it, I would say, but it wasn't kind of uh, premeditated. A lot of scams are premeditated and there's a almost an act to it, a structure to it, uh, and you play it and you practice it and then you uh, perpetrate it against people. And with this one, they go to the police department and they say, oh yeah, these guys are, this is a lot of this going on right now where somebody's hitting another car, saying they got hit by a car and then having right. a witness and the pull police up. Know, uh, the police, like me, have heard all these scams and uh, they know all these scams. So, you know, they would have recognized it for what, what it was. And of course, they would have never, the two guys would have never went there because they probably would have got arrested. And I go back to with this one, though, it was in person and you, you would obviously always want to be cautious and, as you say, drive away or in, or in their case, go to the police station. It's not worth trying to figure out what's yeah, and, mo- and I will say that most of the time, the majority of confidence men, con artists, scam artists are not violent people. Right. So most of the time, it's just based on trying to intimidate you. But if you walk away or whatever, the, most of the time, no one's going to cause you any bodily harm because they're not that type of a criminal. And they, uh, so it's much better as long as you feel it's safe to just simply drive away and uh, do like they did. Was there... Uh, as as you were talking about when when you were doing it um, and cashing checks, was it a high for you? Do you think at the time no, as a I young think, person? You know, I think a lot of people, uh, and and I would admit that if it was, but a lot of people say, well, did you get great satisfaction? But boy, did you walk out? In other words, and say, well, I really took those people for their money. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't that. It was more about uh, me surviving. So here's another way for me to get money because I need uh, money to live on. And it wasn't that I walked out and felt some satisfaction that I I took that person. As a matter of fact, it was a little bit more of a little bit of guilt to it. And certainly as I as I got older, what was real funny about uh, and I truly sincerely mean this, that had I at that time in my life walked into a dry cleaner, for example, and no one was at the counter and I happened to look over and the registrar was open and there was all this cash sitting there, I wouldn't have taken any cash because I would have said to myself, one, that's stealing. Two, are the people that own this little dry cleaner, they're going to be out the money. And so I always looked at everything as an adolescence. Okay to steal from a big bank, not okay to steal from uh, mom and pop. You know, I convinced a bail bondsman, uh, In when you read the book, Catch Me If You Can, a bailout Bailey was his name in Boston when uh, I did get arrested, but just overnight. And uh, Bailout Bailey. Bailout Bailey yeah. was the bail bondsman. <laughs> and in and, and that incident, uh, just so you know, I, I was in the Boston Logan Airport. I had gotten on board what was then National Airlines from New York to uh, Boston. And the, they got a little suspicious in the control tower. So they asked the police at the Boston Police Department to uh, pick me up and question me. So I got off the plane, which the Boston Police Department was patrolled by the Massachusetts State Police. The state trooper uh, took me into the police station there in the airport and said, I need to um, verify you are a pilot with the airline. There's a little suspicion that you're not. And I said, well, I know. Here's my ID card. It was 11 o'clock at night. So they got a little suspicious. They did stop one pilot to come in and ask me some questions that were, what's the rate of climb on this aircraft and things like that. But you had done your research. But I had done all yeah. the research. So the guy said, I think he's a pilot. You yeah. know. So um, 
They decided that they weren't convinced, so they said they were going to take lock me up overnight for vagrancy. Now, this is back when you could do vagrancy, even though I had money in my pocket and all that. So I got thrown into what's called the Charles Street Jail in Boston, which was an old famous jailhouse. And, but I was in this pilot's uniform. So I'm sitting in the cell. Now it's like 1 o'clock in the morning, and I hear this guy talking to the guy in the cell next to me, and it's the bail bondsman. So he looks over, and he sees me in the pilot's uniform, and he said to me, whoa, an airline pilot in jail, what did you do? So I immediately said, well, I was in the airport, and this guy was mistreating his girlfriend, and I got in a fight with him and hit him, and uh, they arrested me, locked me up under some vagrancy So this just came out. Yeah, just that. Yeah. Till court tomorrow. Yeah. Well, you don't need to spend a jail. You make you can make some bail. And I said, well, how much would bail be for something like that? He said, you know, I'll write the bond, but you need to it's about five hundred dollars. And I said, well, I don't have you know I don't have any money with me. I do have a checkbook, but they have it downstairs. Well, I'll take a check from you. So I went down. I wrote him a check, and I got out of jail. You can imagine the FBI when they came said he bail bond. He got bonded out, and then they said, how did he pay for the bond? He wrote him a check, and they said, good for the bail bondsman. He'll learn a lesson. But instead, about a week later, I mailed the bail bondsman the $500 because I didn't want him to be out uh, any money. He did you a real favor by getting you out of the Charles (laughs) Street jail. Uh, So um, as you're telling the story, I wonder if there's like a modern-day equivalent of the airline pilot or if pilots still have that sort of – cachet in society today. You know, that's the other thing. I thought Steven Spielberg did such a wonderful job of explaining what travel was like back in that yeah. era, how pilots, yeah. airline pilots especially, were such an, uh, such an looked at with such esteem, and uh, it had so much power being the pilot. You know, everything I did was more about uh, just opportunity. So when I first started writing checks at the, immediately at the beginning, I would go in a bank and try to convince the teller that – and these were like $25 checks, $30 check, with some story about you know I needed to get home or something. All I had is my checkbook. And they would always say to me, you have to go speak to that man or woman sitting behind a desk. Which you probably and, didn't want to do, right? No, no, I did. Oh, but I'd right, go okay. over and I'd try to – you know, it was like a manager, assistant manager. And many times they said, nope, can't do it. You don't have a bank account with us. You know, can't do it. But once in a while, I'd win, and the guy say, "You know, I'll do it this one time for you. I'll initial okay on this. Give it back to the teller, but don't you can't do that again." And then here I am walking down the street, and I saw this airline crew, and I thought to myself, "Wow, if I could get a uniform like that, and then I walk in the bank as an airline pilot, Boom, and so it. I want to cash yeah. a check, instant credibility." And it had nothing to do with I'm going to get on planes, ride around the world for free, stay in hotels. It was all about if I get that uniform, I can go in, write these checks. So I did get the uniform, and I ended up walking in the bank. It was like night and day. I just walked up to the tell, oh, sure, you have your company ID? Yeah, no problem. We'll cash a check for you. And, and I couldn't believe that they were really just seeing the uniform. I had I was totally irrelevant. It was the uniform they saw. And I realized at a very early age the power of that uh, that uniform. So whether it was you as a, as a young man dressed in a pilot's uniform and not to relate to these fellows at all right. or these guys pulling up in a car, it, 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 I mean, it's a lot of acting. Right. Right? I mean, it's like you know, conmen are all just actors. Right. There's a or great – maybe if you're on the phone telling somebody a story and they've got jury duty or they've got this or that. There's, there's a great on when people buy on, on the DVD and they have the second disc, which is the interviews with all the actors, myself and Steven Spielberg, some of the FBI people. Uh, it's a great little disc, and on there is an interview with Leo, and Leo says, you have to understand that the reality is 
Frank Abagnale was probably the greatest actor that ever lived right, because yeah. he truly acted 24 hours a day, seven days a week. From the moment he woke up, he was on stage till he went to sleep. And, you know, you didn't think of it back then, but he was he was right. You were constantly, constantly acting. Yeah. You and could have you had a whole different career. You could have been in Hollywood. You, you either play the role or you don't play the role. So you can't say, I'm going to play the role this morning, but not this afternoon. You have to play the role the entire time. What was the hardest role to play among the different uh, occupations that you got into? I feel like the doctor was The doctor was, was the, most, the most difficult. Because you must have had to avoid a lot of Avoid a lot of things. And I was like, you know, again... Everything I did, I fell into. If I had premeditated to be a doctor or be the lawyer, it would have never happened. So I moved in an apartment complex in Atlanta, and it was a singles complex, which they had back then. And on the application, it asked occupation. Well, I began to write down airline pilot because that's what I've been tending to be for a couple of years. But then it said supervisor's name, contact number. So I thought to myself, I'm going to have to come up with something that would be impossible to check out, but something that would justify why drive an expensive car, wear expensive clothes. So I wrote just in the box, doctor, nothing else. So I had an inquisitive apartment manager, and she goes, oh, ooh, I see you're a doctor. I yes, what type of doctor are you? So I first thing came to my mind, I just said, well, I'm a medical doctor. <laughs> However, I, I'm not practicing medicine right now. I left my practice in Los Angeles to come to Atlanta to invest in some real estate holdings I have. I won't be practicing for a while. Oh, how interesting. Well, um, what type of medical doctor are you? And then I figured being a singles complex, I'd say pediatrician. Sure. So, okay, so I said I was a pediatrician. That's a great idea. So I moved in as Dr. Frank Williams' pediatrician. Now, everyone I met just Frank thought Williams. I was a, pedi- a pediatrician. And uh, shortly thereafter, I, a real doctor moves in who is a pediatrician in the apartment below me. So someone tells him I'm a doctor, so he comes up to introduce himself, and I get to know him. He takes me up to the hospital where he works. I meet the hospital staff. And then the next thing I know, he's saying to me, hey, would you mind covering a shift at the hospital for a couple of weeks? A doctor has had a death and his family is returning home. It's just an administrative job. It doesn't require licensing or from your other state or anything. It's just an administrative position. And Perfect. I thought, sure, why not? Well, I was always up to the challenge to see if I get away with it or not. So I went, I went and did it. But Again, I always try to tell people, you know, people always say, I saw the movie and then I read the book. And then when you read the book, you understand how you really kind of fell into all these things. It wasn't that you planned them and you did them. They're all things I fell into that. uh, And and that was the opportunist into me. There were just opportunities that I saw and took, took advantage of. Frank, I'm afraid that uh, we've digressed once again, as, as, but that's actually the point of the show <laughs> right. and the point of having you here as uh, my co-host. So uh, hopefully our listeners have learned something from the story of George and Sandra and also right. been entertained by your your experiences. <laughs> um, but uh, be on the lookout for, for any anybody telling you that, that you just ran into them or at least be skeptical, as you always say, too, right? So, and again, I'm not going to hand somebody money without, uh, you know, just say, well, I think the damage cost $100. You owe me $100. Uh, you know, but I would be a little cautioned about even though I'm saying to you, let me just take you to this body shop, which might be 10 minutes away or 40 minutes away. That th- that party could just be part of the scam. So then you think you you maybe, well, this guy's right. I did hit him and that's how much it costs to fix. That's all part of the scam. Frank Abagnale is one of the world's foremost experts on the topic of fraud and scams and also uh, my co-host here and the AARP's Fraud Watch Network ambassador. So thanks, as always, for thanks, Will. joining been us. Great being with you. If you or someone you know has been a victim of a scam, please call AARP's Fraud Watch Network helpline at 
1-800-908-3360. All right, I'd like to thank our producers, Julie Getz and Brooke Ellis, our audio engineer, Julio Gonzalez, and, of course, my co-host, Frank Abagnale. Thanks, Bill. And be sure to subscribe, download, rate, and, of course, like our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Are you 55 plus? There are many ways your community could use your help. As an AmeriCorps Seniors Volunteer, you can put your skills to work for the causes you care about, whether that's by becoming a companion for an older adult or a foster grandparent for a child, tutoring students, joining a disaster response effort, or fulfilling another interest. Choose how, where, and when you want to volunteer starting at just a few hours a month. This is your moment to make a positive impact on your community and get back so much more in return. Visit americourt.gov slash your moment today.